morning to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand once again for the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, and we are going to find ourselves this morning looking particularly at verses 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Let us give our attention now to the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, we read, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Find your seats, please, brothers and sisters. I trust the Christmas story is known to you well enough. If we take our cues from the nativity scenes, we find the Christ child is in a manger with Joseph and Mary looking after him while the whole family is huddled in a barn surrounded by animals. Everything seems normal enough. Yes, we're using that word normal quite liberally at this point. Be that as it may, when things have finally settled down, all of a sudden there is a knock at the barn door. To the surprise of both Joseph and Mary, there are, standing at the threshold now, three magi, or wise men, and they have arrived. It is immediately discernible that they have traveled from a very far country, and they quickly reveal that they have come to worship this Christ child. Now, if all of that wasn't strange enough, they have not shown up empty-handed either. Matthew 2 records the puzzling scene. And going into the house, the Magi saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I think to our modern sensibilities, we are immediately assaulted at this scene. If we step back for just a moment, questions might fill our minds. Who invited these guys? Why would they just show up unannounced? It's obvious that Mary is no doubt exhausted after labor, and I imagine that Joseph is less than thrilled now to have to entertain three guests. What kind of person just shows up? And then, of course, there's the gifts. It should strike us strange that they brought nothing that was on Mary's target registry. They don't bring diapers. They don't bring cute onesies. They don't bring wipes. Instead, they come with gold and frankincense and myrrh. We ought to ask ourselves, what's going on here? 
And in we asking that question, if we take into account all of sort of the, the, the culture that is at play here in this story, we still have to acknowledge that these are strange gifts. Gold makes probably the most sense. I say that because throughout Scripture, gold is something of a symbol of both divinity and kingship. And so the wise men recognize that this Christ child is a king, so they have brought him gold. That makes the most sense. Plus, it also no doubt funded Joseph and Mary's trip to Egypt. The other two gifts that are brought, though, are a little bit more difficult to reconcile with societal norms. Myrrh, for example, was a perfume used at the time for embalming. Not the most charming sentiment as a gift for a newborn. Then you have this thing called frankincense. This was a white resin or gum, and as the name suggests, it was used as incense. In fact, you actually find it being used in the temple by priests as part of Old Covenant worship. You, you could go so far as to say that, that frankincense, it, it actually is bec it becomes part of the liturgy when you read through the book of Exodus, for example. So given frankincense's function in the life of worship and the priesthood, I don't think this is too far of a leap to make. This gift here is emblematic of Christ's priestly role. In other words, if gold points to Christ's kingship and the myrrh to Christ's impending sacrificial death, well, so the frankincense lets us know that this newborn king is also a priest. Now you will remember, I trust, in an effort to slow down this Advent season and truly reflect upon the wonder of Christ and to cultivate reverence for Christ, we have set aside this whole month for Advent. Advent being a word that comes from Latin meaning arrival or coming. And in this context, we are talking about the advent or the coming of Christ on Christmas. Last Sunday, we saw how Christmas marked the advent of the long-awaited prophet of God. He who would proclaim God's gospel to sinners like us. This morning, we are going to see how Christmas is the advent of the promised priest of God, he who would make an end of all our sin. Before we go there, though, let's make sure we all understand the role of the priest, biblically speaking. In short, the priest of the Old Testament was one who mediated between the holy God of Israel and the people of God who were sinful. Recall from last week, the prophet was one who had his back to God and he faced the people and he spoke forth the word of God. When you look at the, when you look at the priest, he actually has his back to the people with his face to God and, and he is doing the work of God on behalf of the people. 
So what was that work, you ask? Well, the work of the priest was actually quite multifaceted. For example, the priest was in charge of guarding the sanctuary of God. The priest really was, in a lot of ways, a security guard. I should say, in passing, Adam, as the priest in the Garden of Eden, which was a holy place, you will recall that he failed to guard the temple. Because when that intruder, that slithery serpent, came in and cast aspersion on the word of God, what Adam the priest should have done was grab the nearest shovel and decapitate that pesky critter. But of course, Adam failed in his work. The priest was also responsible for teaching the law of God to the congregation. Ezra is perhaps the quintessential priest in this regard. And Ezra 7.10 gives us a good summary of the job requirements. Ezra 7.10 tells us, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So the priest was a teacher. That's not all. The priesthood also had the great privilege of praying for the congregation. As something of a snapshot, consider what took place at the Passover celebrations. Second Chronicles 30, verse 27 tells us, Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his, to God's holy habitation in heaven. Remember, the the priests are those who are mediators. And so uh, part of their job was to intercede on behalf of the people, to, to offer prayers for them. But perhaps the most important task assigned to the priests was that of offering sacrifice. Know this, morning and evening, sacrifices would be made for the people of God. And let's be very clear, no one could just decide that they want to perform this task. This was a responsibility given uniquely to the priesthood. Now I should add, this whole enterprise of sacrifice, it presupposes what? This is so important. If we don't get this, nothing else is going to make sense. And I don't mean just nothing else this morning is going to make sense, but really, Christmas itself will not make sense if you and I don't get this in our bones. The enterprise of sacrifice presupposes what? Sin, doesn't it? The whole priesthood, right? The sacrificial system, the temple, the rituals, the animals, the blood, all of it. It only makes sense in light of God's utter holiness and our utter sinfulness. Which means that in some way, the priest was charged with taking care of the sin problem. Which also means that Christmas, the advent of Christ, must also have something to do with taking care of the sin problem. This is perhaps most clearly seen when we consider 
the single most important day in the life of the Old Testament priest. What was the priest's Super Bowl, if you don't mind me putting it that way? It was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is and was, even to this day, remains the highest holy day in Jewish religion. It happened only once a year, and it really puts front and center the role and sacrifice that the priest would partake of. What I want to do then is give you something of a brief summary. I'm going to hit just the highlights. If you want more details, you're going to have to read this section of Scripture on your own. But for now, I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus 16. Leviticus chapter 16. As you were turning there, let me say this. Critical for understanding the Day of Atonement is the limited and exclusive nature of the Holy of Holies. You see, in the Old Testament, God's earthly presence was most thickly manifested and experienced in the Holy of Holies tucked away back in the tabernacle and, and later in the temple, remember where the, where the Ark of the Covenant resided, was God's dwelling place on earth. And no one, no one was permitted to enter this place. Except the high priest. And only on one day a year. And only after much ceremonial preparation. Why, you ask? Because, and again, this is a theme that it is repeated in the Old and New Testaments, one we've already made mention of this morning and one that we will continue to make mention of. The reason for this is because God is altogether holy. And because God is holy and because you and I are stained with sin, we can't just barge into God's house. We don't have the luxury of just deciding, well, whoever can come whenever they want, kick the door in and say, I'm here, look at me. This means that before the high priest could even begin to do his work, he had to cleanse himself from his own personal sin. You find this, for example, in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. And then it is succinctly expressed in verse 6. Because there in verse 6 we read, Aaron, that is the high priest, shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So long before the priest could ever actually serve the covenant community on that day, he himself had to be purified. And it was only then that the Day of Atonement would begin formally after the priest had made purification for himself. When this Day of Atonement began formally, the ritual revolved around two goats. Verse 7 of Leviticus 16 sets the stage. We read, Then he, that is the high priest, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And these two goats, beloved, they, had very, uh, they, they both had very different destinies. The first goat, we are told, was sacrificed. 
meaning that the high priest would literally grab hold of the animal, grab a knife, and slit its throat, killing it, and spilling its blood. Verse 15 paints the horrific picture. We're told that then he, again, that's the high priest, then he shall kill the goat of the, uh, he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil, that is to say, inside the Holy of Holies, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Just pause for a moment. Imagine the sounds, if you can. The squeal of the critter. The sound of the blood draining into the bucket and and filling it up. Not to mention the smells. My point is, this really was a a graphic and immersive experience. Not just for the priest, but recognize the congregation is there in attendance. They are viewing all of this. They are hearing it and they are seeing it. They are participating in it through the mediation of the priest. We are told that once this blood was collected in this basin, it would be taken inside the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God. And as we just read, that blood would then be sprinkled all over the mercy seat, which sat atop the Ark of the Covenant. Leviticus 16.16 tells us why. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Why? Because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So don't miss this. Blood had to be spilled. A life had to be taken. The Ark of the Covenant which has as its top the mercy seat, the dwelling place of God on earth. Remember, you've got the Ark of the Covenant and then the mercy seat on top of it. Well, what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? If you were to take off the lid, if you will, what is inside? Well, among other things, it contains the law of God. It contains the Ten Commandments. And because... Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, blood must be shed. The point to, be, to not be missed here is that the breach of the covenant requires death. That's why blood would be sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant. But that's not the only event that takes place here in the Day of Atonement. Remember, there is a second goat, one that has been traditionally referred to as the scapegoat. Verse 21 of Leviticus 16 gives us a glimpse. We are told that Aaron, he's the high priest, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins, And he shall put them, that that is, the priest shall put the sins of the people, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. 
You catch that? The first goat has the priest lay its hands on it and its throat is cut. But this goat also has the priest lay his hands on it, symbolizing that the sins of the people have been transferred to this goat. And then we are told that this animal, now symbolically carrying all the sins of the people, is escorted out of the camp. It's made to leave. Verse 22 adds, the goat, that is the scapegoat, shall bear all their, iniquity, all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now zoom out. Think with me for a moment about this bloody and, yes, something of a strange ritual. One animal is executed and another is exiled. What is it that God is teaching His people here? What is it that He is teaching us? Well, allow me to give you two theological words that capture what is taking place here. The first word is the word propitiation. The other, expiation. Propitiation and expiation. Propitiation is a word that refers to the removal of wrath or anger. We have to understand that our sin provokes God's wrath. It is an affront to Him. And that is because God, by very nature, is a being who is holy and righteous and pure and just. So propitiation refers to the assuaging of God's wrath and the gaining of His favor. Expiation runs the other direction. If propitiation refers to the removal of God's wrath, expiation refers to the removal of our sin and its guilt. It might be helpful to think of these things along directional lines. Propitiation is vertical. God's wrath that comes down on us needs to be removed. That's what propitiation is. And expiation is horizontal. It is my sin, it is your sin, and it is the guilt that we carry upon our souls because of it. And yes, for those of you that are astute, propitiation and expiation does create a cross, doesn't it? Think back to the Day of Atonement. At that first goat's throat, as it is being slit, and as that blood is then brought into the Holy of Holies, and it is sprinkled upon the mercy seat, the picture painted here is that by that act, God is propitiated. The people have sinned and something has to die. Blood must be shed. And it is through the shedding of blood that God's wrath is placated. Then there's the second goat. 
as the sin of the people is placed upon that goat and is, le- and is then led away from them, the picture painted is that the people's sin is expiated. As the goat wanders away into the wilderness, out of sight from the covenant community, it is carrying away their sin far from them, as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist tells us. That's the picture of the Day of Atonement. Here's the problem, though. As wonderful as the Day of Atonement was, it was actually quite inferior. Let me tell you why. Here are two reasons why the Day of Atonement was never designed to be the end all. First, it was temporary. We'll flesh that out more in a moment, but for now, don't miss this. The Day of Atonement was repeated each and every year, wasn't it? So here's the question. Did those sacrifices, did those goats that we just looked at, did they really offer propitiation and expiation? And the answer is no. Because if they did then would you really need to have another Day of Atonement next year? Then second, the Day of Atonement was typological. That is to say, it pointed beyond itself to something greater, to something better. It looked forward to a better priest with a better sacrifice in a better temple with better promises grounded in a better covenant. Think of it this way. The Levitical Day of Atonement was that 19-inch black and white television compared to the 85-inch 4K flat screen that was to come. So the Day of Atonement was inferior for at least two reasons. It was temporary and it was typological. And for both of those reasons, and many more actually, we find something greater. And that is exactly what is fleshed out in the book of Hebrews, which is where we began. So please turn back to Hebrews 10 now, and let's see if we can close the loop. As you are probably aware, the book of Hebrews, which is actually a sermon, it goes out of its way to extol and to exalt the glory of Jesus Christ. And the way that Hebrews does this is by routinely comparing and contrasting Christ and the Old Covenant. So, for example, you have Christ and angels, Christ and Moses, Christ and Levi, Christ and the whole Old Covenant. What I want to do now is zero in on Christ and the priesthood. In fact, what I want us to see is that this sermon in front of us, Hebrews 10, it demonstrates how Christ is the single greatest priest that we will ever need. The only one we'll ever need. So with Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement and priesthood bouncing around in your mind, consider these five contrasts. First, take note of the stance. All the priests who came before Christ, what were they doing? What was their posture? Verse 11 answers. 
and every priest stands daily at his service. What about Christ, though? As the great high priest of the new covenant, Christ has, middle of verse 12, what? Sat down. Don't miss this. The former priests are standing. Why? Because they have work to do. There is no sitting down on the job because the work is not finished. But then you look at Christ and he has his feet up. Why? Well, because he has accomplished his priestly work. Second, don't miss the sum. The sum. Here's what I mean. How many sacrifices did the old covenant priests offer? The answer? A lot. A lot. The middle of verse 11 puts it this way. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And they did this over and over and over and over again. The Day of Atonement, for example, happened like clockwork each and every year, as did all the other required sacrifices. Think about it. There's the feast days, there's the new moons, there's the Sabbaths, there's the holy days. Did you know that at minimum, no matter what, at minimum, an animal was sacrificed every single morning and every single evening? Two a day at minimum. That assumes there's no holidays, or rather we say no holy days, no feast days. Just Tuesday, one in the morning, one in the evening every day for generations. But, verse 12, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice. So, old covenant priests, many sacrifices. Christ and the new covenant, just one. Just one. That brings us then to the third observation. Look at the difference in situation. You see, why did the former priests have to offer sacrifice after sacrifice? Because, as the end of verse 11 tells us, those sacrifices can never take away sins. How do we know this? Because if they could, you wouldn't need to repeatedly offer them, right? Every goat, every bull, every lamb, every critter that has its throat slit is a vivid and graphic and chilling reminder. Something has to die for my sin. And this animal that has just died will not be the last. There's another one coming tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Christ's sacrifice, though, is effectual. That is to say, it accomplishes something. It really does something. Verse 12 clarifies. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, Christ sat down because Christ's one sacrifice really and truly takes away all our sin. Back to those $5 words. 
With Christ, there really is propitiation and expiation. The wrath of God really is satisfied by Christ's offering. And our sin and its guilt, it really is removed, expiated by the offering of Christ. Allow me then to mention the fourth contrast, sacrifice. Maybe we can get at it this way. Recognize what sets Christ apart from all the other priests who ever came before him is not that Christ offered a sacrifice. Because they all did. The difference is this. Christ is the sacrifice. He is both the offerer and the offering. And because of who He is, the unique, perfect, incarnate Son of God, because He is the second and better Adam, because He is the covenant head of a new humanity. Because of who He is, His sacrifice, His blood, it is of infinite worth. That's the difference, isn't it? Between His sacrifice and every other sacrifice. Hebrews 10.4 Hebrews 10.4 confesses it is impossible it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But by the blood of Christ, all our sins are taken away. Okay, Redeeming Grace, we've seen the stance, some situation, and sacrifice. Now let me point out fifth and finally, and perhaps most gloriously, the status the status. Verse 14 puts it like this, for by a single offering, he, that is Christ, has what? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You hear that? Christ's sacrifice perfects us, right? Something is changed because of Christ's cross. Our status is now different because of the self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean there in verse 14? That we have been perfected for all time. What, what does that entail, you ask? Well, think about it this way. What made the previous sacrifices imperfect? And, we saw, and as, as we've already seen, they didn't fully and finally propitiate the wrath of God, nor did they remove the stain of sin and its guilt. And I hate to be redundant, but this is important, and this is the flow of argument in the book of Hebrews. How do we know those old covenant sacrifices didn't do it? How do we know they weren't enough? Because remember, they had to continually be offered. And therefore, such sacrifices, Hebrews 9.9, 9, Hebrews 9.9, 9, those sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Hebrews 9.9, 9, Old Covenant sacrifices can't do it. They are unable, they are impotent to actually perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
And yet that's exactly what makes Christ and his blood and his sacrifice and his covenant so much better. Because verse 14, Hebrews 10, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has done this. In Greek, the verb is not actually a past tense as we might expect, as if he did do this. It's actually a present tense. What does it matter, you ask? Well, it puts the emphasis not just on the fact that this event happened in the past. Obviously, it did. Christ's death on the cross happened a while ago. But the emphasis here is that the death of Christ has ongoing and continuing effects in our lives. Down and dirty. This is what it means. Right now, in this very moment, regardless of how crummy of a week you had last week, and regardless of how quote-unquote good of a week you might have this week, Regardless of all of that, solely on account of Christ, you have been cleansed from all your sins. If you are a Christian this morning, God is not mad at you. God is not angry with you. God is not looking to drop the hammer on you. God's wrath has been propitiated. And you don't need to walk around with your head hung low because you had a bad week last week. Your sin has been removed. Your guilt has been taken away. Your conscience has been cleansed, not because of how good or stellar of a Christian you are, but because how good and stellar Christ is at saving sinners. Christ is has done this. Hebrews 9.9, those old sacrifices cannot perfect us. But Christ can. And Christ has. So zoom out with me. This is important. We don't, we don't want to miss the big picture. What's the whole point of the priesthood? What was their job? Well, the priest enabled the covenant people to draw near to God. That was the whole point of their work, right? That's why they did what they did. The sacrifices that the old covenant priests offered were intended to enable God and his people to live together. Well, likewise, that is what Christ, our new covenant priest, has done for us. Through his cross, Christ has secured our redemption. And he has brought us to God, our Father. Looking at Christmas through the lens of Christ's priesthood then, we can say this. Advent is about the coming of Christ, the faithful new covenant high priest, who through his own self-sacrifice does what? Don't miss this. He placates the wrath of God. He cleanses our conscience. He removes our sin. And, this is the big one, this is the payoff. Why does the sacrifice placate the wrath of God and remove our sin from us and cleanse our conscience? It's all a means to an end. It is all so that Christ, our priest, would usher us into the very presence of God. This 
is why Christ has come. This is why Christ dies, beloved. This is why, and I think I had mentioned, it, mentioned this last week, the gospel writer goes out of his way to let us know that the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. Mind you, the, the very presence of God, remember, the, the, the holy of holies, it was reserved for just one man, just once a year, and not before intense ceremonial ritual. But the glory of the gospel is this. Now through Christ, it is open to all and everyone if they would come to Christ in faith. This really is the good and glorious news of Advent. Though we have sinned against God and been estranged from Him, God has not seen fit to wash His hands of us. Instead, in His grace, He has sought us out. More to the point, Christ has come. And as our faithful high priest, He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. What's that, you ask? Again, He has taken away all our sin and brought us to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Christ. We thank you that in your grace you would send us a Savior, though we certainly do not deserve one. We thank you that this Savior does not give to us a laundry list of things to do, a bunch of hoops to jump through. But instead, Christ does everything for us that you require of us. All that you would call us to do is to trust in Christ, to rest in Him, to rely upon Him, to find our life in Him. And so we ask this morning that, that not only in this hour of worship that your spirit would do that in our hearts and our souls and our minds, but over the course of this entire Advent season, that you would fix our attention upon Jesus, that you would fix our attention upon the Savior, he who has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We ask that you would do these things, Father, in the name of Jesus and do so for our good and for your glory. We ask these things again in Jesus' name. Amen.